Do you know my Aunt Lucy? Uh, she might be your great 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 aunt Lucy, but she's actually related to all of us. If you were alive in the 70s, you may remember the discovery of Lucy, who is one of our earliest ancestors that was ever discovered. Now, this Lucy has done a lot of evolving to get all the way to the Homo sapiens that we are today. Having opposable thumbs, walking on two feet, standing upright, and falling for pyramid schemes. You know, the things that make us human. But evolution is a very long and twisted tale. And a lot of times we think of evolution in the past. Like we evolved to be this species. Or corn has evolved to be the interesting crop that it is today. So we're going to clarify a thing or two about evolution in today's episode. My name is Louis Colarotolo, and I am a PhD student in the food science department at the University of Guelph doing what I think will eventually get me a PhD. I like to have conversations with normal scientists like myself, really just students in the field who are still learning a lot, but still have a lot that they know. And as we learn and grow and, well, I guess evolve in our fields, we are able to say a lot of interesting things about what we work on. We are going to talk with Michelle Gilbert, who studies evolution here and now today, specifically studies the evolution of fish and uses math in order to figure out how that shape has changed over time. So we're going to have a conversation with Chase that is going to walk us through some of the basics of evolution, how we see it in our daily lives, and what it really means for the long scheme of things changing through the river of time. So sit back and don't worry about keeping an eye on your goldfish. It's not going to grow legs anytime soon. But keep in mind while listening, we are not professionals, we're just students, and we don't know everything. Which is why you're listening to an episode of We Know Some Stuff. How you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing good over here. Could you do us a favor for all the listeners out there? Could you give us a rundown of your educational history? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So um, I originally went to um, West Kentucky Community Technical College for two years where I got an Associates of Science. Um I then went to a nearby school called Murray State University, where I received my bachelor's um, in fisheries and aquatic sciences. Um, then I went to Western Kentucky University, where I worked with Dr. Michael Collier, um, and I received my master's. And now I'm currently at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where I'm a um, PhD candidate. And then what is your specific program over there in Massachusetts? Um, in Right now, it's organismic and evolutionary biology. All right, so there they go, everyone. We are combining the fish aspect and the organism, organism and biota, that thing. <laughs> We're combining those two today, and our topic of today's show is going to be how fish change over time. All right, let me start off with uh, what I always think about. Whenever someone says the word evolution, and specifically when someone says fish, my brain immediately goes to the picture of that fish growing legs and walking out the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> what, what can you say about that? Do you got any fun anecdotes? 
you know, evolution is not so cut and dry, right? Um, if anybody were to discover a fish that just grew legs and walked out of the ocean, they'd be pretty famous pretty quick. <laughs> I think they'd also disprove, um, you know, over 150 years of Darwinian evolution as we know it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, evolution is, is really about small changes over time. And those small changes, you know, accumulate in a number of different ways. They can be, um, you know, small mutations and, you know, um, the genetic code. And those are going to have cascade of effects down the line. So, you know, we're not talking about evolution happening in, you know, a thousand years. This is something that certainly happens, happens over eons. So even over a thousand years, because a thousand years seems like a really, really long time to me. If we were to look at what uh, humans looked like a thousand years ago, we would be different or pretty much the same? Like, what is... I don't know. Yeah, so there's... Humans are kind of a weird one because we're all over the globe and we, you know, have lots of really crazy regional differences and unique populations and we have... Um, a lot of unique morphologies just in like facial shape, for instance. Um, but, you know, humans a thousand years ago were still homo sapiens, still humans. Um, you know, a thousand years ago, we had the kings and queens in England. I guess we still have queens in England. She's famous. They're still there. Yeah, they're yeah, still she's, there. She's see? still kicking it. Um, <laughs> I hope she's not a thousand years old. But, you know, it, it's really a thousand years is not that long ago. Buildings that we created are still standing in some places. So, I mean, even the Egyptians, which were much, much older than a thousand years ago, we still have relics of their existence. Yeah, that's like two, three, almost four thousand years ago. Yeah. So it a thousand years seems like a very long time. But as far as like evolutionary time scale, you're telling me a thousand is like nothing? To a fly, it might be more than to something like us, right? Because flies reproduce very quickly and they have quick generation times and you can accumulate mutations very quickly. But, you know, we're talking about human beings who currently live an average of 80 years and we produce two, maybe three, maybe even one on average, at least in the United States, offspring you know, per generation. So it's it's a much slower progression of those um, accumulated traits or accumulations of mutations. So then could we do like evolution 101 over here? Let, let's, let's break it down to the real simple. And I want you to correct me if I'm wrong. All right, so we got uh, two species. Well, no, we got one species and they're mating, and every once in a while we get some random mutation. Something's weird on this guy. If that species, the one with the mutation, finds out that it has a competitive advantage, it then reproduces, and this leads to a favorable trait being passed along that potentially helps them survive. Is that evolution in a nutshell? Yeah, and but mutations don't always... Mutations always don't produce a phenotype. Sometimes they don't do anything because we have a lot of nonsense in our genetic code and sometimes a mutation just doesn't do anything. But sometimes mutations result in good traits. People always like think that, oh, it's a mutant. It must be bad. But 
mutations are the source of, you know, novel traits and adaptation. So mutations are neither good nor bad. It just depends on the context. It can give a competitive advantage or it can be completely disastrous or it can do nothing. So it's very context dependent. Is it possible that I have like a whole bunch of mutations in me that I don't know about? Is that a reality? Um, yeah, I would. I mean, I think it's possible for everybody to have mutations that we don't know about. And can I like call off a of work and be like, yeah, oh, sorry, I just I've been <laughs> mutated since birth. Can't come in today. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that if you had that kind of mutation, you'd probably already know it. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I guess I can get away with so much. You ruined my day. So I know. Now let's go from evolution. We talked about humans for probably a little bit too long for someone who is a uh, a fish and uh, marine sort of evolutionary. Yeah, we're starting to sweat a little bit. Yeah, right. Like, oh, that's a different episode. That is a different specialty. So, fish change over time. That makes sense. But let's start from the roots of it. Way back when, you know, we started with a single cell organism and it slowly changed over time. And we look at the fish counter at a grocery store and there are so many different kinds of fish out there. So how do we go from one single cell organism to humans and elephants and monkeys and plants to fish, but then from fish to red snapper, uh, zebra fish. Wait, is zebra fish a fish? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that fish, the zebrafish, uh, uh, to a sea bass, to a trout, to perch. Can you tell us something about diversity of fish? Yeah, um, so there, there are, you know, there are two big parts to what you just said. You know, the diversity of life itself is a much bigger question than the diversity of fish. Um, that <laughs> I would quickly get outside my comfort zone getting into the, the nitty gritty of that. But, you know, we're, we're ultimately talking about selection, right? We're select, you know, we, we talked about, I mentioned mutations, and these mutations happen just as a product of, of replication. When you, re- when you replicate your DNA, um, when a single cell divides, it, you know, it makes mistakes. So there are errors. Sometimes, again, just to reiterate, those errors can be good. Sometimes they can be really bad. So we're talking about, you know, a billion years and more of accumulation of mutant, you know, little mutations and cells that are dividing at different rates, and you end up producing cells that communicate with one another and form colonies, and you have cells that start to divide into unique organism systems, and they, it's just a growing complexity, um, and it's all because of selection. There's these processes that are just these outside forces that are saying, okay, this mutation is good for this environment, so let's, we're going to keep it okay, this mutation's bad, it's going to die. It kind of just goes from there. You know, there's no, like, playing hand. Like, nature doesn't just come in and hit something with a hammer and say, nope, you can't live. It's very context and environmentally dependent, right? So let's let's talk about some of those forces. What are some examples of these forces that causes these uh, evolutionary pressures? Well, so a hmm, so maybe a really, like, straightforward uh force would be just like maybe very early on during evolutionary time when we had you know this outside event where it changed the atmosphere to have you know more oxygen um and well it, maybe it gave it enough oxygen but then these bacteria started settling in and they could 
take advantage. I said oxygen. I meant CO2. They could take advantage of the CO2 and convert it into oxygen. And now you have a mutation that might come along and it's like, oh, there's oxygen in the atmosphere. We can start, you know, moving onto land and acquiring atmospheric oxygen. These aren't, you know, these these cells and, and, you know, organisms are not consciously thinking, okay, let's evolve this trait. It's just a product of the mutation happening and it finding, oh, this is the right place at the right time. So through this, you know, things change. We know that our tectonic plates, all the plates that the Earth is on, they're moving. And, and we're talking evolution way back when, and this is what makes me think about it. Way back when, there was like one really large ocean and one really large landmass. And then things got split around. We moved to like two landmasses. Now we got like our seven continents. You know, da 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 da. I'm no geologist. Me either. Or geoscientist or geographic. <laughs> I don't even know which word describes that. But uh, I think about the fact that we have not only Atlantic salmon, but we also have Pacific salmon. So through this evolutionary um, journey, do, do, is there any thing that you can come up with to explain that? Yeah, so, you know, at one point, well, salmon are kind of unique because they are able to migrate these really vast distances. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um and it allows them to kind of settle in new areas. But at one time, you know, salmon were, you know, the population diverged. So you have two populations that were separated. And to be honest, I don't know if Atlantic salmon can breed with Pacific salmon. I would assume that they can, which raises the question of whether or not they're even distinct species. But I don't want to touch that because it's controversial. Um, <laughs> oh, that's that's like what we consider controversy in the evolutionary biology field for marine. Species? Yeah, people oh. get really picky over it. Um, You're going to get some nasty emails later. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, you know, at some, t at some point, a single population was separated, and they formed two new populations, one that, you know, inhibits or it inhabits the Atlantic and one that inhabits the Pacific Ocean. Okay, so they just kind of got separated by space. Uh, whether that was evolutionary or not, we don't actually know. Right, and that's that's a that's actually a form of speciation called geographic isolation. And that's oh, okay, one... so this is yeah, this is a actual thing. It it does happen, <clears throat> absolutely. Um, you can think of a similar. This isn't fish. I know you brought me on here to talk about fish, but another another example would be like um, how. You know, a mouse population that gets split up because a new a river forms, right? You have a population of wooded of woodland mice, and then a new river forms throughout that that region. It floods and it separates the two populations, and now they're going to have unique trajectories, possibly, right? So in the future, if that river remains and those mice never get to the point where they can build bridges, they might just diverge into two different species. I lived with mice that were very smart, so I'm not going to put it past them. <laughs> they these were Philadelphia mice. They meant their business. We honestly, we just cohabitated because I was too afraid to do anything about it. <laughs> so mice building bridges, I'm all for it. All right, so we said that we could have species. They go from one area to another. That causes change. You're going to have those woodland mice do one thing. You're going to have the mice on the other side of the river do another thing. But even within that, 
they are in physical environments, you're now saying that their traits will change. And specifically, you wanted to talk about shape. What do you mean by shape? <laughs> um, so shape is exactly what it sounds. Um, how do the geometric proportions of any particular anatomical trait change? And I say anatomical trait. It doesn't have to be a specific trait. It can say, you can say, okay, well, how does, you know, the shape of the foot in a mouse change? Or how does the lower jaw of a fish change in different environments? Or even whole body shapes. A lot of the work I do looks at whole body shape um, in fishes. So how do you go from a fish that looks really circular to really oblong? What creates that? What what is forcing those those two you know populations to separate, even if they are the same species? Um, and so you know it it's to me seeing how the environment is pushing for particular shapes in different environments within a species is really cool. So the environment is you know in certain conditions there's heat there's how much salt there's predators there's prey. Uh, there's sunlight, there's so many different factors, but to some point, a specific shape is favored. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not always necessarily a particular shape. It can be a variation of a shape. Um, so I'll give you a couple examples. Um, in the North American Southwest, um, where we would be like New Mexico and Nevada, there's um, or even Texas, there are a ton of these little desert fishes um, and they live in these big old pools of just salty dirty water De wait desert fish okay i'm i'm just going to suspend my disbelief for a moment continue <laughs> so out in the desert there are these massive um sinkholes that are just filled with really 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 salty water it can be 10 times that of ocean water at, at in some points because it's so dry that you have massive um, evaporation uh, during the warm seasons, and it just further concentrates the salts that are already there. So in some of these populations um, that are, you know, isolated to these really salty sinkholes, you know, you wouldn't even probably want to rinse your mouth with the salty kind of water, right? It's nasty. Um, but then there are other areas where that are connected to flowing rivers still, right? And so the water is very fresh because you have a constant influx of this nice fresh water. And so when I was a master's student, what I was interested in is, is head shape. Does head shape in these different populations vary? Um, and uh, my PI at the time had already done some work looking at desert fishes and had shown that in really salty environments, the head was a little bit bigger um, and the opercles were bigger. The opercle is the part that flaps whenever you can, you know, you watch a fish breathing underwater and it's flapping on the sides of the head. And then some other work in, um, that somebody had done with African cichlids showed a very similar trait that, you know, cichlids in very salty environments had larger heads. And the idea behind it is a large means more space for gills. So if you have larger gills, it's easier to get more oxygen in a, in a, in a big pool of water that's just full of salt because you're not going to have a lot of oxygen um, available. And so wait, why is there less oxygen available in the salt pool than in a river? Well, the salt pool is stagnant. It's not moving. So there's no turnover. 
It's also really hot, and hot water doesn't hold um, oxygen very well. And mm. it's full of salt. So the more salts you have dissolved in the water, the less oxygen that can be in the water. Ah, uh, so we have less room for oxygen. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that's like when you have a fish tank and they got the bubble bar in the background. That's what's, you know, oxygenating the water? Yeah, it's disturbing the surface of the water and letting the, the, the air mix with it. Gotcha, gotcha. And, and I feel like this needs to be said because I frankly i'm not gonna lie like it still kind of confuses me fish don't breathe water everybody uh they process the oxygen out of water That's is right. that correct that is right <laughs> is there like a better way to say that can you describe that using more science <laughs> yeah maybe a little bit but i you know i think that pretty much the gist of it is that fish bring water over their gills and their gills are highly vascularized and oxygen diffuses in because there's less oxygen in the gills than there is in the environment and they just push the water out when they're after they filter it and so the oxygen gets in the bloodstream it goes to the heart and it's pumped throughout the body just like it you know it is with, with us okay so it's passive just kind of like a passive breathing can a fish stop breathing am i getting a yeah. little bit off topic maybe a little bit but fish can stop breathing <laughs> Do they can they like choose like to get to be like this fish is like yo I'm gonna hold my breath see how long I can hold my breath I have no idea but I imagine that if they wanted to do that they would probably start gasping just like we do because breathing is ultimately a passive um, response yeah, you know you you can hold right. your breath but eventually you're not gonna be able to <laughs> right right and your body is like no I'm going to breathe. Whether it, you want you don't to really or help. not, you're about to inhale well, something. <laughs> exactly. That's a really good point. Okay, all right. And now we're rolling back, rolling back to the shape. So you were saying that when you had the fish that were living in this more salty water than the fish of the same species that was living in the more aerated water, the, the more water that had the river flowing into it, there was a decrease in the... Or my bad, there was an increase in the the head size so that they could take in more water to get more oxygen because there was less oxygen available for them. That's our that's the hypothesis, yeah. We 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 weren't able to I'm not a physiologist, so I didn't do any work to drive that hypothesis, but that is the working hypothesis, is that yeah. And you and you have this low salinity or this high salinity environment, low oxygen. It's beneficial to have larger gills. To have larger gills, you have to make a bigger head because they got to go somewhere. Fair enough. So, all right, so that's that's an example of shape. Do you have another one for us? Because this is fascinating. I love it. I want I more. Um, so we actually, some shameless self-promotion, we actually had a paper come out just recently in Evolutionary Applications um, for South American cichlids. Um in South America, there is the Tocantins River. And recently, I say recently, 30 years ago, they built this huge dam on it um, to hold back water for a reservoir. And when you do that, you change the system from a fast flowing river to a still water lake. Um, and there's, there's a lot that goes on in a fish's world um, when something like that happens. It's a drastic environment, it happens very quickly. So what we wanted to know was how shape changed in 30 years following the construction of this you know, big reservoir. And it turns out that you know, some of the 
fish that were fast flowing waters get deeper bodies. And you might think, okay, well, why do fish get deeper bodies and why does that matter? Think about the shape of a submarine. It's very elongate, very cylindrical, has a nice cross section. Think about the fish, the shape of a tuna, also very elongate. Its cross section is, is oval or diamond, right? Those shapes are built because they are very hydrogen. Means when they swim really fast through the water, assuming that the submarine is actually swimming, it's reducing the amount of drag on it, right? Because if you want to go fast, if you want to swim fast and conserve energy, you don't want water holding you back. So having this really elongate, slender, torpedo-shaped body is really good for living in a riverine environment. Well, when you're living in a deep water environment, it makes no sense to have that streamlined body shape because the water is not moving against you. You just have to get through it. But what is adaptive for still water environments is the ability to turn really quick. Well, if you're swimming and you want to turn really quick, having a deep body is really adv advantageous because you're swimming and then you turn and the water helps you turn because it pushes up against you and you orient your body differently. So there's a trade-off between deep-bodied animals and long, slender animals um, or highly fusiform animals because of just fluid dynamics. Yeah, that sounds like, I mean, we could build a nice analogy to cars from that. Exactly. You have your race cars, your, your Formula One cars, that they're long, they're skinny, they reduce drag, but they don't have to be able to do a, a lot of, like, turning because like with the Formula Ones, they go around that one track. But if you're trying to do one of those more stunt races, those cars have to be able to navigate trickier and faster turns. So their yep. shape is a little bit different. Absolutely. It's, that's a great comparison. So ultimately, we're just, not we, but uh, ultimately, the fish are developing body shapes that best suit their environment. So this, this fish that you were mentioning, it used to be in a flowing river, and then it went into a shallow pool. So did you see that it went from torpedo down to deep body? So just to clarify, it wasn't a shallow pool. It was a, it's, a, it's a pretty deep reservoir. <laughs> okay. It, I mean, how deep is a reservoir? I have no idea. They vary. Um, I mean, you couldn't touch the bottom in this one. So. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um. But yeah, so we use this um, this complicated, fancy technique called geometric morphometrics. But basically, what we're doing is we're putting, we're using math to say, okay, is this body shape different than this body shape? And then by how much is this body shape different than this body shape? So we're able to quantify the degree of change between two populations of of whatever you're looking for um, in terms of shape. And so yeah, we saw that in ours over the over the course of 30, 35 years, we saw fish go from more slender body shapes to shorter, deeper, more robust body shapes. So is there a population of these slender ones still in existence, or did they all change? So it's just, so the, the population that still lives, the populations that still live in the riverine environments are presumably more still, or presumably still elongated. Okay, so yeah, this is a really a good illustrated example. Shape has changed because their environment has changed. And that was a man-made change. It wasn't necessarily um, 
you know, environmental because be, uh, we we did that. Right. Um, and now I know I've heard stories in the past where, like, you know, a, a company wants to build a dam or they want to build a bridge. And then an environmental biologist comes by and says, oh, you can't build that dam. There's just one of these species left. If you do that, the entire ecosystem will collapse and we will all die. <laughs> what kind of uh, what does this mean? What's the reality of this kind of situation? We as humans like to expand and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon despite us really needing to change that. The number of dams that are going to be constructed over the next, you know, century are it's only going to go up. You know, the particular dam that I was mentioning when that dam was constructed, it was found that within 20 years we lost 22% of all the fish species in the area just in 20 years. Um, whether that's due to extinction or whether that's due to the fish not liking the area and moving elsewhere, you know, I don't know. Um, but, you know, we decided to use this as an opportunity to study evolution. How do ecological changes um, spur contemporary evolution? And so to kind of round this back to what we were talking about at the beginning, body shape change from a slightly elongated body shape to a more deep body shape, that's a pretty small change. Um, and it varies depending on where it's at, but we're still talking about a small change. It's still the same species. One is just rounder than the other. So we got kind of excited to say, okay, well, nature also does weird things like just suddenly make a giant pond <laughs> reservoir a lake sometimes it doesn't happen it usually doesn't happen all like within the course of two years but there are instances when we have these radical environmental changes that happen really quickly and we were excited to see how you know fish were adapting to such a fast change and in our minds it gave us kind of a glimpse into okay well what happens when you know a natural population um i guess they are natural but what happens when a natural sudden change happens like that, how do populations respond? And we get small adaptations that, you know, benefit the species that live there and the populations might diverge a little bit. There's all things, all kinds of things to consider, like are the populations still reproducing with one another or can the populations leave the system and come back? You know, we don't know. We wish we knew, but we don't. And that's the reality of it. But Studying these kinds of systems allows us to look at that very early stage of what is happening, you know, when a big change happens in the environment. Yeah, so you guys are kind of studying things as they come up. You can't necessarily plan 20, 30 years out in the future what you want to be studying, can you? Right. <laughs> That's interesting. You know, I, I mean, I, I don't work with anything alive, so I don't got to worry about any timeline. I just order stuff, it comes, I work on it, and then I call it a day. So you now really do embody a lot of what you do. You not only love talking about it and you like doing it, but you also have a number of hobbies that are associated with what you study. Can you, like, tell us a few? Yeah. Um, so it's probably no surprise, but I do keep fish. <laughs> yeah, I house. mean, I would imagine. <laughs> um, my cats. Sadly, I really to get my cats to like fish with me but they just don't care unless they're going to be able to eat it <laughs> um, so they're not into the aquarium business like i am but 
one of my favorite hobbies that I've learned to really pick up on is clearing and staining. And as somebody who likes to study the anatomy of fish, um, it's been an invaluable resource for me. So clearing and staining is this um, really old technique. There's nothing fancy or new about it. It's been done for you know decades. Um, but what it involves is, is you introduce the specimen that you're interested in looking at to a series of chemical baths. Um, you know, we fix it like you would fix anything like in formalin and then put it in some alcohol. And then what we do is we stain the cartilage um, blue with a blue dye. And then we stain the bone pink with a pink dye. And then we put the specimen in this bath of digestive enzymes and it eats away all the, all the gooey bits. <laughs> and what you're left with is collagen and bone and cartilage. And so you're able to look at a specimen skeleton fully intact, fully articulated, and pretty cyan blue and pink purple colors. <laughs> oh, okay, so it's almost kind of gives you an x-ray sort of vibe. Yep, and you can manipulate it. So, you know, if you wanted to move the animal around and examine part of the anatomy, you can do that. Um, some animals end up being more fragile than others, but that's a technique that I learned um, a few years ago, and uh, mainly for scientific reasons, but now I do it mostly as a hobby. I do also do it for my research. Um, I use it heavily in my research, but just exploring and playing with things. I, I hope my PI ends up listening to this because I think he'll laugh, but I see most of my job is just like playing around and asking questions and hoping something works. And I think that's usually what science is. At least that's what it is for me. Um, so, I agree. I give you, I give you definitely for sure. <laughs> so I, you know, I get to see a lot of neat things just by playing around with animals in the lab, you know? So um, my hobby is definitely an embodiment of me just like playing around with science and learning anatomy and thinking that it's cool. I mean, I feel like I'm a, I'm a kid most of the time when I'm working. So is this like one of those hobbies, like, you know, you got woodworking or, or bejeweling or whatever. Is this one of those hobbies where, like, everyone in your family is going to get, like, some digested fish for for the holidays? No, they're creeped out by it. What? Um, Think about it. It could be like a steady stream of presents. You know, it, uh, Like, you know, people do pottery and they give those presents. What's wrong with receiving a... The dyed <laughs> fish skeleton with cartilage. Um, so what I do do in lieu of that is I do make art from these in terms of photography. So I spend way more time than I probably should taking like really good pictures of these things. And I you know, try to distribute that to the public. And I have given those to family before. And sometimes they're like, oh, wow, that's really pretty. And other times they're like, you know, where did we fail? <laughs> <laughs> I kid, they've never said that. I don't know if they've thought it, but they, they've never not said that. Not to your face. That's Not to my face, that's right. <laughs> so that's super interesting. This is just yet another example of a scientist living their science outside of the lab. I'm honestly, I'm fascinated by it. I think that... Um, I'm not sure I want to own, you know, some dyed fish bone things and stuff, but I, I imagine it's just great.
Well, you'll just have to go look at it sometime. Nah, yeah, I think I'm good. Okay, so <laughs> could you, to close things out for today's show, give us a moral of the story? Sure, I might give you more than one, but <laughs> I'll do my best. Um, so first off, I um, science should be fun. Science should be exciting. And one of the most important things that you, I think anybody could ever learn is that science is fraught with failures and every failure is a learning opportunity. That being said, I think that something maybe more relevant that we spent a lot of time on is evolution. Evolution is slow. It takes time. Evolution doesn't happen because an organism wills it. It doesn't happen because it's like, I want to fly, so I'm going to start evolving wings. That doesn't happen. Evolution is very slow. It takes a long, long time, the accumulation of small mutations over those long, long times, and it's all context-dependent. depends on the environment. depends on what's helpful, what's not. A good mutation in one environment might be a very, very bad mutation in another environment. It's, it's just very dependent. So evolution is slow. Science is really cool. Sometimes we fail, but every failure allows us to learn something new, and that's why science is constantly changing. Um, so I guess that's what I would like for people to know as we wrap things up is it's just fun. <laughs> would you be willing to say that science is evolving? Yes. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) it is time to stop recording. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I am. I'm just honestly so blown away with the the little details that go on, the, the shape of the fish that's changing over time. Some crazy stuff that I had no idea about before. So thank you for sharing that information with us. You're more than welcome. I it's it's always fun to talk science with people. Evolution 101. In order to survive a new environment, a species needs to change, and sometimes those changes manifest in the physical form of their body. So we learned a lot about how these changes come about, why these changes are needed, and how we might see them in our daily lives. It's important to keep in mind that these changes take a very, very long time to see because the course of evolution is not a matter of one or two or three years for something as more complex as a fish rather than compared to a fly. So we have to kind of keep ourselves on our toes and watch out, but at the same time know that nature's going to take its course and it's going to be a while. On the other hand, it doesn't take us too long to realize that we might have said something not entirely correct. That's why at the end of every episode of We Know Some Stuff, it's super important to us to have a fact check portion. Because as the show title says, we know some stuff, which means we don't know everything. And sometimes speaking on the fly, we don't get everything 100% correct. So the only thing that we found that needed fact checking from today's episode or more so a reclarification. Earlier we were talking about how geography can separate two different species, like a river separating a one population of mice and another. I gave up the example of potential shifting of continents splitting up salmon populations, like how there are Atlantic and Pacific salmon. Chase did a little bit of digging and determined that it is indeed possible for Atlantic and Pacific salmon to breed. 
more or less what we're saying is that they are not that far off different from each other than one might think. They grow up in completely different habitats, but their genetics and their DNA are similar enough that they can have offspring with each other. In general, if two species can have offspring together, it means they are typically pretty genetically similar. So it all goes to say that the Atlantic and Pacific salmon are really not too, too different from each other, although they grew up on more or less different sides of the world. As a listener, you may have not found this information super important, probably because you're most likely not a fish that is trying to adapt to a new environment. But if you did happen to find anything that we said interesting today, you could always re-listen to these episodes at crfu.ca in the archives section of the website. So thank you for listening, even if you didn't really pay attention. And we hope that this wasn't your last episode of We Know Some Stuff.